And in keeping with our policy to entertain and query interesting guests, people with lots of differing opinions, sometimes people who have been canceled. We have a very fascinating guest today. Quick disclaimer before we get into it. I feel like Dr. John Campbell here, if you've seen his recent videos. CDC states that vaccines do not cause autism. Billions of childhood vaccines have been administered and reported side effects are uncommon. CDC also states that COVID-19 vaccines are safe, effective, and reduce your risk of severe illness. Of course, I'm a board-certified physician internist. Dr. Kelly is a board-certified ER doctor. And parts of the show may be examining differing points of view uh, and important important issues. And uh, today will be no different. We are specifically talking to Robert Kennedy. He has a new documentary out called The Real Anthony Fauci, which I have watched. Very interesting. Robert Kennedy is a founder and chairman and chief litigator counsel, litigation counsel for the Children's Health Defense Organization. There is one of his books. He's a founder of the Waterkeeper Alliance. He has uh, obviously a whole list of accomplishments behind him. We'll get right to it after this. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I am a lifelong Democrat whose family has had 80 years of deep engagement with America's public health bureaucracy and long friendships with key federal regulators, including Anthony Fauci, Francis Collins, and Robert Gallo. Members of my family wrote many of the statutes under which these men govern. You're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. Big tech robber parents, the military and intelligence communities, and their deep historical alliance with Big Pharma and the public health agencies. The disturbing story that unfolds here has never been told, and many in power have worked hard to prevent the public from learning it. The principal character is Anthony Fauci. And Robert F. Kennedy, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Dr. Joe. I want to give a little more of your particulars. And again, I want to also thank Dr. Kelly Victory for coming in today on a special Tuesday because we had the great pleasure of interviewing uh, Mr. Kennedy. Uh, Robert is a graduate of Harvard University, studied at the London School of Economics, got a law degree from University of Virginia. And uh, he has, again, as I said, multiple uh, uh, accolades behind him. So... Let's just uh, give you a chance first. I, I, the book, I, several things just struck me hard about the book. Some enlightening and some made me bristle. So what, what was the purpose of writing the book? How did you get to this point with someone who, as you said, your family was connected to, wrote the policies for? What went wrong? Well, I, I wrote the book, Dr. Drew, because I had a unique perspective on kind of what happened to our public health regulatory agencies over the past, really since 1980, you've had this kind of steady 
erosion and um, and the, the, the regulatory aspect or the regulatory features of those agencies in many ways have been systematically subsumed by the mercantile ambitions of the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry has many, many inroads for influencing these agencies, and it has used them skillfully and invested uh, in lobbying and many, many other uh, um, uh, ways to make sure to capture those agencies. And uh, the, the paradigm or the kind of embodiment of agency capture is Anthony Fauci. And he has really altered during his 50 years at the agency, he has altered the architecture of the agency so that it no longer uh, serves primarily a public health purpose, but it instead he has transformed it into an incubator for pharmaceutical products. And in many cases, the pharmaceutical products that are developed at NIH and then farmed out to the university by investigators and, and for development by the pharmaceutical companies, uh, NIH retains the patents on them and the individuals who work, who are supposed to be regulators, who work on those products at the agency receive royalties on those patents. They've received over $300 million. Individuals within NIH, people who work for Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, and the agency itself can receive hundreds of millions. It will receive billions of dollars from the Moderna vaccine. And those kind of incentives disincentivize the regulatory purpose. And that's kind of, you know, I think for many Americans, they had an uneasy feeling about the countermeasures that were proposed and that enforce over the first two years of the pandemic that it really wasn't giving us a good public health outcome. Uh, and they, but they didn't really have a, a narrative to kind of hang their, their disease on. And, you know, we use these, we employed all of these protocols that were recommended by Dr. Fauci, and where did it get us? It got us to a point where we had the highest body count from COVID of any nation in the world, we have 4.2% of the global population. We had 16% of the COVID deaths. We had uh, the, the countries that did not adopt Dr. Fauci's protocols that adopted instead of early treatment protocols with IBM, with HCQ, um, and lower vaccine coverage and, and lower emphasis on lockdowns and social distancing had much, much better outcomes. I can give you an example of Nigeria, which had a 1.3% vaccination rate, where the entire country is on uh, prophylactics of IVM and HCQ because of river blindness and malaria burdens in those nations. And they had a death rate of 15 people per million population. We in this country had a death rate of 3,000 people per million population which is one of the highest rates in the world. So it's hard to understand, and I think it was hard for many people to understand why we did so poorly in the fight against COVID and why people continued to regale Dr. Fauci as kind of a savior or a medical seer. 
Well, I, I was one of those people that was suggesting that we do use him as a, a guiding light. Uh, and by the way, let me just say, on Nigeria, of course, you know, we, there's lots of confounding features, young population, thin population, vastly younger than us. Okay, let's, uh, let's but, just but, stop there for a second, because that's yeah. true. You're making a good point. There are many confounders. And, but if you look around the world, not just in Nigeria, and all of Africa, which, you know, we were told at the beginning, Africa is going to get slaughtered by this disease. Yep, we did. We were. had a death rate of around, an average death rate of around 300 per million, and we had 3,000 per million. You look at two oh, no, nations. I, I, I get it. I get it. It's, it's, it's worth it's analysis. Wealthy nations like Japan, like Singapore, um, the Scandinavian countries, the people who allow to access to early treatment and who de emphasize vaccines consistently did better than we did. And if you look at nation by nation around the world, according to the Johns Hopkins data, the countries that had the most success at mass vaccination had the worst COVID outcomes. So something's wrong. And as you point out, there are many co-variables, but those are things we should be told about and should have been studied. And we should have been given answers yes. to that. And that is the problem. Those things never happened. It was instead yes. attitude yes. of any that, that, that you've got to hide. Y- yes, the, the should have been studied is the headline in every interview we have done. Everybody who has an alternative opinion, at the end of the conversations, we all always agree. What, it, we need the studies to know what we're doing here. What... I have so many questions now. One is, um, you're, I'm going to ask it two, two at a time because I have so many. One was, you're not implying that the <laughs> that the FDA and the and the CDC are involved in illegal activity. It's the structure such as it is that the pharma took full advantage of. It's not illegal. It's just really seriously problematic. And um, my brain is not working that well today. Uh, the other question I had was, why? Why aren't we doing these studies? What 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 is going on? Why can't we get an RCT on boosters in five year olds? Why? What is it? Is this the same thing? Just because the pharma doesn't have to, they don't want to spend the money on it. Well, I'm not going to exonerate FDA or CDC about not doing illegal things. I do believe that they've been involved in criminal activity and a lot of all. Also, just civil illegal activity like violations of the Data Quality Act, which was just consistent throughout. Now, it's hard to enforce that, but it's still illegal. Um, here's some, you know, if you want to look kind of at the mechanisms of agency capture, there are many, many. And as you know, you know, there's now from the opioid crisis, you watch um, you know, the, uh, the movie about the Sacklers. Um, and you can see what, how they do it. But here's one of the problems is that our regulatory agencies are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. So FDA gets almost 50% of its total budget from pharmaceutical companies. It gets 75% of its drug regulatory drug approval budget from pharmaceutical companies. So they're not working for you and me. They're working for those companies. CDC spends... Uh, has a budget of about $12 billion a year, about $5 billion of that go to purchasing vaccines and then distributing them. With CDC, 
you don't get promoted, you don't get recognized, you don't get applauded for finding problems with vaccines. You get a, you get your promotion from doing things that will encourage vaccine uptake and approval of new vaccines. And those are perverse incentives. And of course, they're going to end up um, with you know, with with a problem because you no longer have a regulatory agency. The the, the commercial um, features of that relationship are now wag the the tail that wags the regulatory dog. Let me um, before we bring Dr. Kelly in here, I have a couple two last things, which is um, let's go back to the movie uh, since I, I have you to myself for the moment. One of the things that absolutely jumped out of me as true were some of the, um, I don't want to even say policies, but but sort of uh, procedural biases that uh, Dr. Fauci instituted during AIDS. Biases, not the quite right word. Th things like silencing dissenters, things like using fear and overstating risk to try to get behavioral compliance. I, 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 I did not know that at the time it was, you know, I, I was in the AIDS epidemic. I was there fighting it. And, I, and I've got something to say about that also after I asked this question. Um, but so he was, he was somebody I admired greatly during that pandemic. He was somebody for us young physicians, you know, really we admired and he held a, a great uh, status in our minds and led us well, we thought at the time was not aware that he was doing silencing dissenters. During COVID, that was glowingly obvious, disgustingly obvious that that's what he was doing. But it's interesting to me that that behavior got set up during HIV and AIDS. And by the same token, the fear. He used to always tell us, two million dead, two million dead if you don't get out there and educate. He is why I went on the radio. We ended up with 175,000 dead in the same time interval that he was, he was insisting we would have two million dead. Boy, those kinds of fear, uh, excesses, certainly uh, very familiar given what he did during COVID. So uh, uh, let me just, you it's not really a question so much as um, a, a really question about my perception. Am I getting that right from the documentary that those were two areas of excess that were set up during the HIV epidemic? Yeah, and also, and I, you know, I have, Drew, I have not seen the uh, movie yet. Of course, I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which it's taken. And I do a very, very deep dive into the history of HIV. And I'd say you put your finger on one of the problems. The other problem was the approval of AZT, which were was based on absolutely crooked studies. AZT was a deadly, um, you know, chemotherapy drug that, in fact, it was put on the dump pile and not even patented because it was deemed from the outset to be too dangerous for chemotherapy. And as you know, chemotherapy is usually a two-week or three-week course. And now you're proposing to give this drug that is too dangerous, that kills people faster than cancer. You're going to give it to people for the rest of their lives. Well, of course, everybody who takes that drug is going to end up dead. And, um, so, so, and that's what they so saw. So this, this is... They saw this that is, in this the is, clinical is, trial, and they hid it. Yeah. That was the problem. Uh, this is where you and I are, are going to disagree. This is where you and I disagree because because I, I you, you this is exactly this is the only this is a place where you and I are going to disagree, which is I was there. 
I was involved in the research. I was there when we opened the boxes of AZT, and you cannot imagine how thrilling it was when we were telling people every day they had six months to live, and we were never wrong, and now we had at least something. We could do something. Yes, we had to watch their CBC. Yes, there was bone marrow suppression, but we could do something. And alongside of that, we developed treatments for cryptosporidium and isospora and pneumocystis and the Burkitt's lymphoma that were tearing them in half. We developed all these things as we pushed it back over a couple of years, and other antivirals came in. The, the, the AZT was never a chemotherapeutic agent. There was a theory back then that reversed that that RNA viruses caused cancer. And so the idea was that this agent would help attack the these RNA viruses as part of the causational process or the progression of cancer. It was of course wrong. That's why they abandoned it. Yes, it was a it was not something I would recommend people take if they weren't have a life expectancy of 6 months. We were never wrong. They never lasted longer than that. It was the most darkest, awful horrible period you could possibly imagine and to open these boxes and tell patients well we have something it's not great but we have something we're going to try it we're going to do the best we can um that was that, that was you know I, it, that's the way kind of medical research goes when you're in desperate circumstances so that for me it's a very personal story because i was there fighting hiv and aids and um you know that's my thing yeah, and i get that and on what i would say to you is read the section of my book on the AZT trials. And that's all I'm saying, is the AZT trials, okay. without any doubt, the FDA's own investigators, Inspector General, found that they were catastrophically crooked and that they did not show a beneficial effect for AZT. And AZT was developed by NCI as a chemotherapy drug, and it was rejected as too toxic, and Glaxo owned it, and it did kill the HIV virus in a Petri dish. And so it, it passed one test for being an effective antiviral, which it killed HIV. And the question is, is it going to kill you or the HIV first? And, a lot, and I, I would just say to you, Take a look at that part of my book, and it may change your, your opinion. And by the way, what you said about the desperation of compassionate doctors and healers being given something that they are told by a regulatory agency is going to help people is a really important factor, I think, in all of medicine, because doctors are not giving out these drugs thinking that they're harming people. The problem is if the drug is not adequately tested, and by adequately tested, I mean a standard placebo-controlled trial where you give a placebo to a large group uh, and you give the vaccine to the study group, an equally sized group of similarly situated people, and then you look at all health outcomes over maybe a five-year period. And if you don't have that, you do not know what the risk profile is on your product. And there's no way a doctor on the ground treating patients in a clinical setting yes. is going to yes. be able to say this person died of AIDS or this person may have died from toxicity from the AZT. But you don't know that unless you have a study that really allows you to look at that. And that Which was very, very much uh, pertinent to the present moment. Uh, for instance, we're using things like 
Paxlovid under the age of 65, and we have zero studies for that, where you have vaccine therapies for five-year-olds. We have zero RCT on this. We have mask wearing in schools, zero RCTs on this. So yes, I, I'm very sympathetic to that to that fact. And, and doctors, to be fair, we do stuff to try something. We're trying stuff. We think we think we're doing good. But we, uh, when we don't have the data, we don't know what we're doing. That point is quite relevant. We have our clinical experience, but we don't really know what we're doing. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems with the um, – let me just – let me tell you just an historical um, uh, anecdote. The most commonly used vaccine in the world is the DTP vaccine, the diphtheria tetanus pertussis. WHO gives it to 161 million African children a year, and it is the benchmark vaccine by which nations, the African nations whose health agencies are financed by WHO, they qualify for that financing by demonstrating that a certain uh, percentage of their population has received the DTP vaccine of children. Oh, for many years, Bill Gates and the WHO have said, we have saved 30 million lives with this vaccine. And they went in 2017 to the Danish government. And they said to the Danish government, will you support the DTP program in South Asia, Africa? We've saved 30 million lives. And the Danish government said, show me the data. And they couldn't. So the Danish government went to Guinea-Bissau in West Africa, and they hired, they retained the greatest vaccine, the top deity of vaccinology in Africa, Peter A. Aby, Sigrid Morganson, these names that are part of the pantheon of, you know, the great uh, vaccine promoters. And they had 30 years of data on the DTP vaccine in West Africa. And they went through all of that data. And what they found was that girls who got that vaccine at two months of age had a 10 time, a tenfold chance of dying over the next six months as unvaccinated girls. And the girls were dying of things that nobody had ever associated with vaccines. They were dying of malaria, of bilharzia, of dysentery, of anemia, of sepsis, and of, you know, of just random cuts and bruises. And what the researchers figured out is that although the vaccine was protecting these girls against the target diseases, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, it had wrecked their immune systems and it made them much less able to fend off the kind of daily assaults by microbes and pathogens in our system. And that, that's why you need long-term placebo-controlled studies with vaccines. Uh, with the Pfizer vaccine, here's what we know from Pfizer's data. There were 22,000 people in the vaccine group and 22,000 people in the placebo group. Dr. Drew, Dr. Fauci did something that should make you mad. He said we were going to get a five-year study. But after two months, they unblinded it. Why did they do that? That's a question you should be asking Dr. Fauci. They gave the vaccine to the entire placebo group. So we will never know about long-term injuries from that vaccine. Then they took six months of data, Pfizer did, and they showed it to FDA. So for the first time, we, the public, got to see it, to get their, you know, their approval. Here's what it said. After six months, 
were 22,000 people in the vaccine group, and one of them died from COVID. In the placebo group, there were 22,000 people, and two of them died from COVID. And what that allowed Pfizer to do is to say, this vaccine is 100% effective because the number two is 100% greater than the number one. But what it really means is that most Americans here are 100% effective and they think, well, that means if I take the vaccine, I'm 100% not going to die from COVID. But that's not what it means. What it means is they have to give 22,000 vaccines to avert one COVID death. And if you're going to give 22,000 vaccines to avert one COVID death, you better make sure that vaccine is not killing anybody. So now you go to table five, which is the all-cause mortality data. And what they showed is in the vaccine group, 21 of the 22,000 people died over the six-month period from all causes. In the placebo group, only 17 died. So what that would indicate is that you, you know, that should be looked at because if you, yeah. if you look at, if you're trusting their data, you have a greater chance, a 23% greater chance of dying over six months if you take the vaccine than if you don't. And here's, and if you ask why, what accounts for those excess, five excess deaths, they're all cardiac arrests. So in the vaccine group, there are five deaths from cardiac arrest. In the placebo group, there's only one. And that is a very disturbing signal because what it indicates is for every one death they're averting for COVID, they may be causing four from cardiac arrest. And now we're seeing real-world data from, you know, from all the early adapters from Singapore, from Israel, from the UK, from Scotland, from New York State, that indicates, and from the insurance industry, from VAERS, et cetera, that we are seeing excess mortality in 2022 that is 40% greater than 2021, and people are dying, large numbers of people, unheard of, are dying of cardiac arrest. So that is something that, again, should be investigated. Yeah, this we all everybody agrees. Where is the data? Why are they not doing the studies? And it's interesting to me that the data you just quoted reminds me, sounds very sim similar to the data on Vioxx, which took that drug, which was an excellent drug, ignominiously, I mean, in, in shame off the market. Uh, and I had a lot of arthritis patients who were on that drug at the time and were lives were turned upside down. I mean, it, again, there there are times when you can take risks and times when you don't. It's weird how it's so arbitrary in the mind of the regulator. But let's take a little break. Well, uh, we'll pay some bills. Something. Yeah, Let me ask you go ahead. About Vioxx. Because I, you know, I'm an attorney, and Vioxx is kind of this, you know, paradigm of, of bad behavior by yeah. the agent of the company because they knew it was going to cause heart attacks. It was an arthritis drug, but they didn't. The problem is they knew it was going to kill a certain number of people, heart attack, Merck. And they decided not to tell anybody. And I think they ended up killing probably 130,000 to 250,000 Americans. You see a lot of different, you know, estimates. And what I heard you saying right now is that despite that, it was a good drug. What I'm saying is, is when doctors know, no, doctors, when we make a, there was a, an awareness that this drug was associated with certain kinds of vascular uh, problems. 
They, they, we didn't have the data. The problem with Merck is they lied about the data. They didn't tell us the data. But uh, there was an awareness that there was a problem. That that I, that drug, everybody was on that drug because it was so effective. Never saw any problems ever, ever, ever. So yeah. we, if when you're when you're clinically, you know, you're having people their lives restored, and you know there's some risk, and you can, by the way, share it with the patient. The problem, really, with that story is that they didn't tell us what you know give us the explicit data that they had to help us make that risk reward analysis and so what i'm saying by bringing it up is hmm, here we are again same exact thing happening isn't it fascinating if you, knew, if you knew there was that heart attack risk you'd be looking out for it but if you didn't well know, you know not only that as as i remember it back in the day when i was using it i i always thought of it as stroke risk because we were seeing that 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 was sort of what the 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 the, the buzz was that this is this drug causes problems in small vessels and stroke with and I certainly wouldn't give it to have ever given it to patient who had a risk of cardiac pathology they they would be excluded from the use of that medication so it, it's it's a complicated story I I know it but it's just so interesting to me that similar numbers today are being ignored. It's being ignored, and then it just like that's just astonishing to me. But, but here we are, and again, more data, more data, more study. We're all saying that. But um, thank you, sir. We're going to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in here. We're going to take a little break and pay pay some bills. The book and the movie is the real Anthony Fauci. I suggest you check all of it out. Uh, uh, Caleb, I wonder if you can put uh, yes, all the books up there. In fact, so you can see what what else. Real Anthony Fauci. There we are. This is all the books that Robert Kennedy has written. And uh, we will give uh, Dr. Kelly Victory a chance uh, to discuss with him. On the pandemic. The, yeah, just on the pandemic. Yes, you're right. I, I beg your pardon. I, you, I, I, I am uh, selling you quite short that way. But yes, prolific author. And this is just about the pandemic, which is the, the topic of the moment. We'll be right back. Consumer price index yet again going up, stock market in turmoil. What's our government doing to quell the surge of inflation that is gutting American families? Oh, yeah, they're spending more money and adding to the burden. Don't bury your head in the sand while your savings get decimated. It's time to do something about this. Visit birchgold.com slash true. Now, I don't give investment advice, but you can visit birchgold, B-I-R-C-H, gold.com slash true. Birch Gold will send you a free info kit on protecting your savings with gold in a tax-sheltered account. Great people with almost 20 years of experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metals IRAs. Don't let your savings lose value. Visit birchgold.com and claim your free, no-obligation info kit from Birch Gold. You can own physical gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account, and Birch Gold will help you do it. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. For a long time, I've been talking about the holy grail of skincare, Genucel, and the amazing results that both Susan and I have seen. I'm a big fan of Genucel's Silky Smooth XV. It's a moisturizer soaked right into my skin instantly. And with its immediate effects, I saw fine lines and wrinkles visibly disappear within 12 hours. Susan loves Genucel's vitamin C serum, infused with the purest vitamin C, absorbs to the deepest layer of the skin thanks to Genucel's proprietary skincare technology. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. 
I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. And right now, Genesil has bundled my favorite products and Susan's for you to try today for up to 60% off retail pricing. That's right. Save up to 60% on my favorite Genucel products today. Just go to genucel.com slash Drew to see what's in our bundles and receive an extra 10% off at checkout when you enroll in their personal concierge at checkout. That again is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, you want to, oh, boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. It is indeed, and welcome Dr. Kelly Victory. And uh, poor Robert, I could talk to him for a month, but now I'm going to hand him over to you for a few minutes, uh, Dr. Kelly Victory. And and you ate into my time, so uh, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm going to have to going. talk really sorry. fast. I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I told really you, I could go for a now. month. <laughs> uh, thank Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here. I have obviously read the book and subsequently did watch um, the documentary or, or movie, and it's brilliantly done, and, and thank you for doing it. Um, Drew and I have disagreed about a number of things throughout this pandemic, although I think he's, um, he's maybe coming coming over to our side a little bit more. Uh, both you and Drew are more generous than I am with regard to our colleagues in medicine. Um, I am a disaster mass casualty and public health specialist, uh, and I have been reporting on the medical disaster and public health disaster that this pandemic response has been from the beginning. You know, you, we knew from the very beginning that we weren't all at 
equal risk from this thing. We knew that masks do nothing to stop the spread of respiratory viruses. We knew that social distancing was a totally made up construct. We knew that readily available cheap medications like IVM and HCQ um, were very, very successful at treating this thing. I reported from the very beginning that the vaccines would be an abject failure and likely cause significant harm to people and and on and on. Um, So what I didn't know as much about was the details of the fraud, corruption, and illegal activity, and I will call it that, that was going on and has been going on at the CDC and FDA uh, likely for decades, uh, if you know, if I really connect the dots from what the, all the research you have done on that part of it, my question to you is: Where the heck is Congress? Where the heck are the people who are supposed the oversight? You know, yes, these agencies have sort of run, uh, you know, they, they've sort of gone rogue, if you will. But where the heck is the regulation, the oversight? Well, you know, what you have is an industry which is now the largest industry in the history of the world and most profitable. It, it's now more than oil. You know, for most of my life, the oil industry was the biggest industry and, and wielded the biggest cloud on Capitol Hill. But that's now dwarfed by pharma. Pharma has more lobbyists on Capitol Hill than there are congressmen, senator, and Supreme Court justices combined. It gives, uh, I think, double. In, uh, in lobbying contributions uh, than the next largest um, uh, lobbying group, which are, you know, um, uh, which is oil. And then I think something like three times what military contractors give Congress. And so you have, con- you know, all of the, basically all of the institutions in our democracy that are supposed to stand between a greedy corporation and a vulnerable child have been eliminated by this industry. And they started with Congress. They went, the next big thing is the press. So we changed the law. The FCC changed the law in, in 1997 to allow, for the first time in history, direct-to-consumer advertising by pharmaceutical companies on television. So... And there's only one other country in the world that allows that, which is New Zealand. Of course, we both have, you know, as a a result of that, we have the highest consumption of pharmaceutical products of any country in the world. We have, I think, three, we take three times, Americans on average take three times the amount of pharmaceutical drugs as Europeans. We have the worst health outcomes. We're 79th in the world in terms of health outcomes. All those drugs, the drug, in fact, the three leading causes of death in this country are number one, uh, cancer, um, number two, heart attacks, and the third cause of death is, uh, is misuse of pharmaceutical drugs or misprescriptions. So they're killing us, um, and they, but they, they, own the, uh, the television and the media, and which is why you see so much censorship today. The biggest advertiser today on TV by far, dwarfing everybody else's pharmaceutical companies, about 85%, 75% of total revenues, advertising revenues to the major networks are coming from pharma. 
on the network news, the evening news is much higher because that is their demographic. It's kind of older people who are buying a lot of pharmaceutical drugs. So it's around 85% of the network news revenues. And, um, and what that means is that they're not just buying advertising space, but they're buying content on the network news. You know, Anderson Cooper has a $12 million annual salary, but about 10 million of that is coming from Pfizer. So who is he working for? Is he working for the American public or, you know, or his viewers, or is he working for the pharmaceutical industry? And I would suggest to you that, you know, this whole campaign of fear to scare us into compliance with the pharmaceutical paradigm and then, you know, to shame those of us who who said, who asked questions about the vaccine or who resisted the vaccine to make those people kind of redheaded stepchildren and second-class citizens uh, in our country and subject to all kinds of bigotry, um, that those were, you know, those are pharmaceutical uh, policies that were promoted by the talking heads on TV. I once went, Rod, I, Roger Ailes was the founder of Fox News. And everything that he believed in, I was, was antithetical to everything I believed in. But when I was 18 years old, I spent three months in a tent with him in East Africa. It's a long story about how that happened. But we had this friendship that, um, that endured our political differences. And it was a and so I spent a lot of time talking with him. He was a very funny man, um, but I am very, very smart. And he believed that um, that the vaccines were causing problems. And I got him to watch a film that we did back in, I think, 2016 about, uh, about mercury and vaccines. And he felt that the mercury had actually injured a member of his family. And he said, I wish I could put this on TV. But he said to me at that time, he said 17 of the 22 advertising slots on my evening news broadcasts are pharma owned. And he said, if a single one of my hosts was to allow you onto their show to talk about this issue, that I would have to fire them. And he said, and if I didn't fire them, I would hear from Rupert, which means Rupert Murdoch within 10 minutes. Oh, I think, you know, that is from a guy who really believed in it, who really wanted to help and felt like he had it. And who was also a tough guy who, you know, um, who, uh, who was willing to break things, but he was scared of this issue. And I think that's, um, you know, and, and so you look at people from other networks who are a lot um, less willing to uh, go against the orthodoxies and we don't have a chance there. Well, this is this is such a critical point, and I want to get into this further because it is the corrupt relationship between you know whether you corrupt, illegal, uh, undisclosed relationship between the FDA, the CDC, and Big Pharma that is really driving this. Tomorrow and Thursday of this week, it's my understanding that the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices or Policies is set to meet to decide to opine on whether or not to add these COVID vaccines to the childhood vaccination schedule. And for people who are watching, the reason that's critically important 
is because if those vaccines are added to the childhood immunization uh, program or schedule, they will enjoy blanket immunity. Moderna, Pfizer will have blanket immunity from any liability because of the National Vaccine Injury Protection Program or plan. Um, This is something that you had called out early on, that that's their big interest in getting these vaccines into the arms of children so that they can mainstream it and get it on the childhood vaccine uh, schedule. This is if this happens, and there's been very little talk about it. It's scheduled, my understanding, to happen tomorrow and Thursday. If this happens, Moderna and Pfizer, with the help of the CDC, will receive total liability protection for this vast number of of injuries that have happened. And we're only at the tip of the iceberg. If you want my personal opinion, I think we haven't seen the uh, the worst of it yet with regard to vaccine injuries. What's your understanding of where that's going? Is there any way to stop it? Well, you know, you saw President Biden a couple of weeks ago said that the pandemic is over, the emergency is over. And he said that on national television. And then yesterday, the, um, the, the HHS announced that it was extending the emergency for another three months. And why are they extending the emergency? Because the emergency allows them to give emergency use authorization to these vaccines and to protect the vaccines under the PrEP Act, shield them with liability immunity so that no matter how negligent the company is, no matter how reckless, no matter how, um, no matter how toxic their, you know, uh, their products, no matter how ridiculously inept or testing protocols, et cetera, and manufacturing quality control and all these other problems they have, you can, no matter how grievous your injury, you cannot sue that company. So, um, and that's the only way, reason that they'll put a vaccine out there. These vaccines are so re- re- um, reactogenic that that company would be buried if we were allowed to sue them. All the people out there who've been injured right now and who have died, you know, 30,000 people on fares, 1.3 million people injured dead on fares, 1.3 million people injured, 250,000 people seriously, like lifetime injuries, um, the company would go under. So they will not market a vaccine unless they get full liability protection. Well, the only way legally they can do that when the emergency is over is if they can get it listed as a childhood vaccine, which means it's going to be mandated for many states like California and New York for children. And we know that children get no benefit from this vaccine. Children are harmed by the vaccine. One in 2,700 boys will get myocarditis. Probably one in 1,100 girls will get a lifetime debilitating neurological injuries from the vaccine. Uh, the reactogen has, this is according to Pfizer's own studies, the data from their studies. Well, I'm not, you know, people, people, I always say, Kelly, people should not believe what I say and they should not believe what CDC says. Do your own research. Well, I'm telling you, and you can go to my website to see Children's Health Defense website. You can see the studies. You can see Pfizer's study there and see what I'm saying to you is true. Oh, they have to get it on that childhood schedule. Now, why you ask the people who sit on that panel, which is a panel that's put together by the CDC. It's a panel called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. People who sit on that panel are not, for the most part, CDC or government employees. And so you think, 
And Dr. Fauci always describes them as independent doctors and scientists who have made this decision. But if you look at who these people really are, these are people who make their living on grants developing drugs and vaccines for the pharmaceutical companies. And there is an unwritten rule. They, they trade places on these committees. They get millions and millions of dollars from pharma. Um, there's a, uh, a 2008 study showed 97% of them had uh, undisclosed conflicts of interest. And a 2003 investigation by Congress showed that 80% of them had, were taking payments from the company whose products they were approving. And what happens is you sit on that committee, you, you, you work at a university doing clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies. And your phase two trial, phase three trial is ended. You then take your product back to ASIP and get it approved. So all the people who are on there, many of them in the future will have drugs that need approving. And so they just have this system where they rubber stamp everything for each other. And it says, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. It's a reciprocal altruism deal that they have. There are also studies that show that people, when they leave that panel, are showered with sinecures and with wealth and with grants and with junkets from the pharmaceutical company and from NIH. So they're all given rewards for rubber stamping anything that comes from that panel. So if it goes to that panel, that panel is incapable of saying no. It will say yes, no matter, even if they brought something in there and said, this is going to kill all these kids, they would still stamp it, go ahead, because they're all on the take. And, you know, it's many of them are what we call PIs, principal investigators for NIA, for NIAID, for you know, Tony Fauci's, um, uh, you know, they, NIH gives away $42 billion a year. And with, if you add Bill Gates, his foundation, and Welcome Trust, which is the UK version of the Bill Gates Foundation, they control 63% of the biomedical research funding in the world. So any product that they developed, and they developed the Moderna vaccine, they own half of that vaccine. They will get billions of dollars in royalty. They, NIH will, and employees in NIH will. Tony Fauci wants that to go through, and if you disagree with him, he is going to punish you, and he will, he can bankrupt your institution because he, you know all these universities rely on NIH funding. All the funding, sixty three percent of the funding in the world, for biomedical research, which keeps these medical schools moving, is controlled by that agency and by his you know confederates. And so nobody is going to say no to a product that he wants approved. And he wants the Moderna vaccine proof. It's his vaccine. It's his baby. He nurtured it. He created it. And he put it in the first in the pipeline. No animal studies. And, um, and he needs it approved. So, and his guys who work for him that he designated are going to make $150,000 a year for life. Between four and six of his top deputies. For life, as long as that thing is approved, then it's given liability protection. So this whole thing is just fixed. And they don't, you know, you look at the data and we know this is not going to help children. It is going to harm them grievously.
Well, we know you're you're right. It, Drew and I talked about this on a previous show. Dr. Paul Offit, who is one of the people on the advisory committee, uh, who said he used the exact term terminology you did. He said he thought the fix was in when they were talking about uh, approving these vaccines under the EUA for use in children. And he essentially his services were essentially dismissed once it made he made it clear that he was not planning on uh, on voting for approval of these things. It's my understanding, I'm not an attorney, obviously, so I'd love your take on um, if we were able to prove fraud, that that the EUA was obtained uh, through fraudulent means because Pfizer and Moderna did not disclose information, as you rightly point out, they already had. We know from the FOIA requests that they knew lots of these things, that the, that the mRNA didn't stay in your arm, that it invaded every major organ system, and on and on. If we could prove fraud, would they face liability? Would this, you know, uh, do away with the blanket liability protection that they are currently enjoying? Okay, well, there's two issues here, Kelly. One is if they if they committed a criminal act, which fraud is a criminal act, they can be prosecuted, but they would be prosecuted by the Department of Justice federal agency. There's, there are certain, if they did it in Georgia or in one of the other states, or if there's a nexus to those states, it's possible an attorney general, a state attorney general could bring a case, but it'd have to be a state attorney general who had, you know, very, uh, uh, let's say, a lot of guts. Um, because you're going up against, you know, uh, huge forces. So, but the U.S. attorney can bring them in the Department of Justice, but they usually won't because that agency that committed the fraud or was complicit in the fraud is their client. And so the U.S. attorneys in the Department of Justice don't like to bring those kind of cases. Now, the theoretically, people like me can bring those kind of cases. And if they go through ASIP, they get approval, which they're going to. Um, then you have to go through the vaccine court first, but you then could sue them technically for fraud. Now, this has never been done except in one case, which I'm the attorney in, and it's in the Gardasil case, the HPV vaccine case, where Merck committed fraud, and um, we can show they committed fraud, and we can show the injuries that have resulted from that fraud. And but and we so far have have passed the the most difficult thresholds, which are pass a motion for to dismiss. We are in discovery right now, and we're about to go into the highest threshold, which is called the Dalbert hearing. And if we get past that, then we can successfully bring these cases for fraud, and that will be the model for the future for people who want to bring these kind of cases against the uh, against Moderna and Pfizer for their you know fraud during their clinical trials the fight, you know the, the thing is their their partnership that they have with the government um is they, it's like a choreographed dance because Pfizer will say oh we never told anybody this which prevent transmission and Moderna would say that, and they would never, and they'll say, you know, we never told anybody that it doesn't cause uh, cardiac arrest. 
but they had Tony Fauci telling people those things, and they had Bill right. Gates telling people those things, and they had President Biden saying, you know, all three of those guys, and you know, Boris Johnson and everybody else were saying, if you take the vaccine, you can't get COVID, you can't die from COVID, you can't be hospitalized from COVID. That's a quote, from President Biden and from Tony Fauci. So we'll stop the pandemic if you take the vaccine. And they now in the Dutch Parliament last week. One of the top executives of Pfizer said, oh, we never even tested it for transmission. We, and right. it doesn't prevent transmission. We all know that it doesn't prevent transmission now. If you, you're, if you got the vaccine, you're as likely to pass it on to other people. And yet we were told you do it to protect granny. And, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to force you to do this to protect other people. But it, didn't, it doesn't protect other people. They just wanted to force us to do it. They knew from the beginning it didn't prevent transmission. They knew from May 2020. I knew it. And I wrote an article about it. How did I know it? Because I looked at the monkey studies. And when they gave the vaccine to monkeys, to macaques, and then they exposed them to wild virus, the, the vaccinated monkeys were had the same amount of viral concentrations in their nasal pharynx as the uh, unvaccinated monkeys. And right then I said, game over. They can't, they cannot mark this product because it's not going to end the pandemic. It's not going to prevent transmission. And Pfizer knew it then and Fauci knew it then. And yet right. they and the, and the- told everybody, they lied and said it will prevent transmission. It will end the pandemic. That was just a lie. Right. And that, and that was the, the entire basis for all of the mandates. Because you have to stop in order to mandate it, it has to be stop transmission, and it never did that. And in fact, we now know there's negative efficacy. At five months from your second shot, you are at higher risk of getting COVID than if you'd never been vaccinated at all. Five Uh, to seven months. Talk a little. Yep. Uh, talk a little bit. The VIR system, um, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, was put in place by the CDC specifically as an early warning sign, uh, signal, as it, it, the, the proverbial canary in the coal mine. It was supposed to pick up on rare events that would heighten their awareness that something may be going awry with these. Yet we have now millions and millions of reports of adverse events to VAERS. Uh, by all estimations, it is an underreporting by somewhere between one, you know, one in 10 times, you know, or 10 and 100 times, excuse me. Uh, it's wildly underreported. We know that. Yet the CDC has refused to look at any of that data. It is their job. That's, that's the job of the CDC is to look at that data. They've done not a single autopsy on somebody who's uh, had a vaccine injury that resulted in death. Is there any way to compel, in your mind, the CDC or the federal government, some other agency, to actually open this book of adverse events and start explaining them. Well, let me tell you something about VAERS that you know people should know is that Congress, because you see a lot of people, you know, like uh, people who are like the you know proponents of of uh, that all vaccines are safe and effective, and you know people who criticize them are crazy. What they're saying is people like me who look point to the VAERS data and say we have more deaths in one year 
in VAERS than in 36 years from all the billions of vaccines, 72 doses of 16 vaccines, billions and billions of doses that have been given since 1986, since we passed the act. And they say, well, that's not legitimate because, you know, VAERS could overstate it. Well, there's no, there is no study that shows that VAERS overstates injury rates. There are many, many, many studies that show it dramatically understates injury rates and that VAERS is was actually designed to fail. The Vaccine Act told CDC, you got to put in place a surveillance system that will give us an accurate view of how many people are being injured by these vaccines. The vaccines under the, you know, the Vaccine Act says vaccines are in its preamble are unavoidably unsafe. We know people are going to be killed and injured. And so, you know, you need a, a system for telling how many people are getting injured from each of those vaccines. So for many years, everybody knew VAERS didn't work. Why? Because it's voluntary. So what it means is that the doctor who gave you that vaccine and then you get a seizure three months later or two months later or a week later, he then has to call, he has to spend 30 minutes filling out forms for which he's not paid to say one of my patients got a vaccine injury. It's he, and, and by the way, CDC is telling him vaccine injuries don't exist. So if that kid gets food allergies three years later or gets, uh, um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes, he's going to say that's not a vaccine injury and he won't report it. So everybody knew it didn't work. And David Kessler, the Surgeon General, said it is a catastrophe. We need a new system. So in 2010, the CDC designed a new system that would not rely on voluntary reporting, but would be a machine counting system, an AI system. And the way it works is they look at a, they take an HMO, the HMO has all your vaccine records and then all your medical claims. So they can correlate each vaccine record with clusters of injuries that are, that, you know, are recorded in your medical claims. And it's a very reliable way of correlating injuries with particular vaccines. You can collect 90% of the injuries that way. So, they designed a system that could do that. They tested for three years at an Harvard Pilgrim, which is an HMO. And then they, they got a very accurate idea of how many injuries actually exist. And what they found was one in 32 people who get vaccinated are injured. It's not one in a million, one in 32. And they, they had a very accurate retention. And then they compared it with the VAERS data from, from the Harvard Pilgrim during that same period. And what they it came back, the CDC, and said, the system we designed works like a charm. CDC promised to roll it out to everybody else, and then they saw the data. And, they, and what the data showed, and this is in the study that anybody can look up. It's published, I think, in pediatrics. It's called the Lazarus Study. That's the, the lead author. from. It was a team from the Harvard Medical School who did the study. And what they found was that 90, that, it, that fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries are ever reported to VAERS. That means more than right. ni- more than 99% are not reported. Right. But when you look at the VAERS data and see 20,000 people dead, um, you know, which are being reported, that is highly unlikely to be an undercount. It's highly likely to be an, uh, I mean, an overcount. It's highly likely to be an undercount and a, a really 
catastrophic undercount because Can I- what we know is the VAR system undercounts and it may undercount by a hundred hundred times. It may undercount by 10 times, but it is definitely undercounting. And what CDC did is it took that study, the Lazarus system that it was going to roll out to all the HMOs and it put it on a shelf and never said anything about it again. And the actual study, which you can go read, the researchers who developed that system said that after we showed the results to CDC, CDC would no longer answer our phone calls. This is a group that CDC had given millions of dollars to of Harvard Medical School people do this study. They did exactly what they were told. And CDC said, we don't want anything to do with it. Well, I think the really Guys, compelling I- thing also is that uh, is that it's consistent, uh, Robert, with what we are hearing from the life insurance companies, the disability companies, the medical insurance companies. Everybody is reporting huge increases in incidents of new onset seizures, yeah, myocarditis, the, uh, blood ambulance, clots. The ambulance companies. Yes. Now, you know, right, right. The, that, yes. you know, the cardiac arrests that are being now picked up, the insurance, company, insurance companies in Europe, the United States, everywhere are saying 40% greater excess deaths in 2022 than 2021 at the height of the COVID pandemic. And they're unrelated to COVID. Something is happening, and this is what Dr. Drew said, which, you know, I, the, probably the most troubling feature, if you care about science, my whole life has been science. That's what I do. Every, you know, I brought 500 legal cases. Every one of them involves scientific controversies. I read science for a living. And if you care about science, if you believe that science at its best is a, cert, a relentless search for empirical and fearless search for empirical truths. You have got to be offended by how they manage their data and the data quality and the analysis quality from the beginning of this pandemic. How they never played it straight with us. How there was always a bias on how they reported it. They never that, stratified that, by age. Yeah. They never. They never told us the right. real. They were never straight about the infection. That, that and the the. Ex- the extraordinary measures to the, which they went to to crush anyone who raised their hand and said, "Um, just questioning. Is this is this okay?" Here, which was the part that really caught my attention early. But I want to, I want to, Kelly. I want to go back around on what you asked. So see if we can get uh, something in our conversation here about this. You asked, you know, where is the, where is the functioning government to disentangle right. this cozy relationship? And and I, I'll ask it. Um, you know, even even more concerning to me than that relationship because, you know, I, I, I'm beginning to think that the reason it happened was they needed money, they found money in the private sector, there it went, and that was it. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they got their budgets were dialed down by somebody and they dialed it up from the private sector and on it, on it went. But be that as it may, my graver concern is the excesses, and Kelly, you and I have talked about this incessantly, the excesses of our public health authorities. What is going to dial that back so this can't happen again? I noticed uh, they were talking about locking down again for Ebola. And again, using fear, claiming it was respiratory borne, all this craziness. Look, if somebody vomits, you're going to have some airborne Ebola, but you're not going to get it from coughing on somebody in a, in a, you know, uh, in a bus station. But, but the point is that 
the the at least I, I don't I understand that that doesn't happen. But the point is, how can we or what's happening to try to reduce these excesses? So should and when this happens again, there's some sort of due process that people's lives and liberty aren't taken away from them, that the things that make life meaningful are not uh, taken away, and the horrible, horrible unintended harms that are caused by all this. Uh, Robert, what what is what are we going to do with that? Well, you know, Drew, that's really a larger question about how do you um, restore democratic institutions when they've lost their integrity, when they've lost their purpose, when they've lost uh, public respect in a, you know, a nation that has nurtured and built these institutions to be kind of a barrier against corporate power since you know, 1790. That was, you know, the big challenge is how do you how do you create uh, civic institutions that will protect the essential values of society against these mercantile and commercial pressures of very very powerful um, actors within the society who are constantly trying to undermine those institutions for their own benefit. And um, you know, I, I I say that was a, is a much longer conversation than we have here. I don't think that there's a a single fix other than you elect a president who totally understands that you know what's happening at these agencies and you know there's there's some people who are like running who are running today who say these agencies have to be burned to the ground and I think that's a mistake. I think um you know there's ways that that we need to fix them and there's ways to do it and I can tell you there you know there's there, there are ways to do it um, but all these agencies are susceptible to capture and all of them have now been so thoroughly captured that they really function um they've lost all their civic function and they've now become wholly owned subsidiaries of pharmaceutical industry um they are sock puppets for the industry that they're supposed to regulate well, t tangential to Drew's question, I would say to you, since you are truly the expert on the real Anthony Fauci, Anthony Fauci is scheduled to step down in December. Um, I suspect we're going to be playing a bit of uh, whack-a-mole. What, what is your prediction for where he's going to end up? I don't see him just sort of you know riding off into the sunset. Uh, I'm, you know, is it going to be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Where, where is he going to be on the board of some pharmaceutical company? Where does Anthony Fauci go from here? Uh, I will say, Kelly, that I never make predictions. And, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is to stay away from any kind of speculation. I don't speculate as to what Tony Fauci's or Bill Gates' motives are ever. I just report what happened. And people, uh, you know, can then make their own decisions about why it happened or what possible motives are, but I don't know what Anthony Fauci will do. Um, I, I mean, the one thing I would say is that this, this is not, Anthony Fauci is a figurehead for corruption at that agency, um, but removing the figurehead is not going to end the corruption. They, that agency is, um, is a, you know, it's, a, it's filled with dry rot. And the, all of these institutional structures are fortifying the corruption. 
and the you know the relationship with the pharmaceutical industries, the payments that they get, the the academic. I mean, you know, Drew, this is one of the things. That's even I talked about all the institutions that stand between big pharma and little children, and you have the press has been corrupted because you know they're all purchased bought by. Um, I add pharma advertising of the social media companies who have these very complex and rich deals with pharmaceutical companies. You have Congress, you have the medical associations like AAP, which receive, you know, 80% of their budget from pharmaceutical companies. And, um, and so all of these institutions are really, um, are not functioning anymore. They're dysfunctional. They're not doing the thing that, you know, that they really, we need them to, to be doing if we're going to really have healthy children and good health outcomes. And we don't. When I was a kid, in my generation, there was a 6% rate of chronic disease. And this is according to HHS data. So that means all of these diseases, obesity, ADD, ADHD, the neurodevelopmental disease, ADHD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette syndrome, uh, ASD, autism, uh, and then the allergic diseases like asthma, allerg- food allergies, which I never knew anybody with a food allergy. I had 11 brothers and sisters and maybe 70 cousins. I never knew anybody with a peanut allergy. Why do five of my kids have allergies? Um, the, uh, the eczema, uh, the anaphylaxis, and then the, the this huge category, this cascade of autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, juvenile diabetes, lupus, and all these others. Now, if, as of 2006, which is when they stopped doing this data collection, 54% of children had these diseases. So we have 54% of our American children who are permanently debilitated. And, you know, what greater crisis do we have in our country than that? And, you know, I can tell you some of it's from the vaccines, but not all of it. Our kids are swimming around in a toxic soup. And, you know, and there are many, many culprits to this. And it's, you know, ADD, it's, uh, it's you know, pesticides and glyphosate and neonicotinoid pesticides and PFOAs and Wi-Fi radiation, and all these assaults on their immune system that operate on the same pathways that are just made this generation the sickest generation in history. And there's emotional problems that are all linked to these chemical exposures, including uh, eating disorders and depression and suicide and many, many others. And, um, and you know, we need to be, we need a public health agency it is going to spend a $42 billion budget figuring out what's happening and then helping us put an end to it so that we can actually protect our children and do what they're doing. And that's not what they're doing. They've taken that money and they farm it out to the universities to develop new drugs. And so all of academia, and this is what I was talking about before, that's the final institution that's really supposed to protect us is the scholars and the journals. Journals are totally corrupt. You know, the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, they're owned by pharma. And so you have, you know, literally every institution that is supposed to protect us from big pharma has been compromised. And, you know, that's why we have an opioid epidemic, because nobody stood up and said, wait a minute, how can you say Vicodin is not addictive, you know? 
And uh, anyway, you guys already know this. You don't need to hear it from me. Well, no. Well, before, you're saying something that record, I've said many right, times. Right. On, on, as I say, I've said for the record, I, I stood again. up. I'm sure Kelly stood up. Which is that uh, the? Uh, but we were crushed by regulatory agencies, right. by the J Joint Commission, by our local state societies. Right. But I mean, you were told you were a bad doctor and interested right. in in patient suffering, and you were threatened right. with legal and and civil action. Yeah. That's what we were threatened yeah. with, not by not by the drug companies, by our own right. organizations, and by patients and attorneys. So anyway, Kelly, finish yeah. up there. I'm yeah, sorry. people don't you know. As I say, people one. don't realize they actually they actually added during one during our training, Drew. We're the, we're the same vintage. Yeah. Um, they added pain as the sixth vital sign, and you had to document the pain level. And then if you didn't adequately treat it, you know, it was it, yeah, it, it was one of those things where you got you got just derided and ridiculed and and sent you know sanctioned but i i think back to this issue about public right. health that movie, Robert, I, I, that movie that documentary on netflix dope sick every american mm -hmm. should look at because it's like the blueprint for how they do how they corrupt the agency and anybody who yeah. looks at that and and doesn't see a parallel to what happened with these vaccines you know you have to see the parallel right. And it's the same people doing the same, you know, tap dance and corruption. But the, the point you make, Robert, about the, the damage that this has done to people's feelings about public health. I have said many times on this show and elsewhere, God help us when the next thing happens, because there will be yeah. a next thing. There will be a next public health crisis. And God help us when we try to get Americans and people around the globe to listen to us as public health experts, because nothing has undermined people's confidence more than this debacle of this pandemic response. We have harmed children. We harmed the elderly. We decimated the economy. Uh, we have a pile of bodies to account for. Uh, we have destroyed the health of the population. Uh, we have created a masterful disease care system. We don't have a health care system any longer. We have a disease care system that makes a lot of people a lot of money. Uh, healthcare has gone by the wayside. And so I think that truly is going to be the biggest tragedy of this entire thing, independent of all of the millions of people who are harmed. The loss of faith, the loss of trust in public health, I think is going to be the greatest casualty of the entire pandemic. I think we're we're probably winding down the clock here, Drew. I'm watching. Uh, is yes. there anything else we yes. should... Out it's on. really that Robert has been very generous with his times, and I and I wanted Kelly to you to sort of earn get back some of what I took from you. So I think we got there. And uh, Robert, <laughs> I, I, we cannot thank you enough for coming and sharing your thoughts. Again, this is an environment where we're trying to hear all ideas and allow people to arrive at their own conclusions. As you're saying, go read these studies for yourself, read the books, read the materials, uh, think for yourself, and. Um, you know, I, I, there are the books, and and I'm just so so concerned about, my, I, I, a lot of things. I, I've learned a lot from talking to people, people that have been silenced or marginalized. Go ahead, Kelly. As I say, how do people access Robert the the, the film? We've we've referenced it, but how, how do people access uh, the uh, film? Yeah, it's uh, for I think how many days? Ten days. Ten days is free, and then you have to buy it. So. You should go look at it today. I think we opened it today, um, and it's called TRAF, which is the real Anthony Fauci, T 
drafmovie.com. If you go there to watch it, I just want to say one thing before we close. Drew, I want to thank you so much for, um, you know, for your courage and allowing me on because allowing me on is going to hurt you in ways that you'll, you'll, you'll you, I'm sure you'll find out soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I know it's a big risk and that you took it, but also um, you're open-minded and congenial and respectful willingness to listen to, you know, people like me who don't agree with you on it, everything and your openness to, to change in ways that you feel are appropriate. And I just, I want to thank you for that. I think that is well, the energy of what a it, public health official is supposed to be doing. So, and Kelly, I don't it, have to thank it, you. I, you I, already know. I think <laughs> she's already in there. She's all the way in. But, but to your point, I, first of all, a, I, I, I treat guests like guests when they're on our show. I'm not going to, I'm not going to treat anybody other than as a guest when they agree to come on this thing. But as Kelly and I have, but from the beginning, our whole thing was, where has the process gone that moves us towards the truth? We're used to fighting. We're used to deliberating. We're used to disagreeing. And that all has gone away. We couldn't believe it. So she and I started disagreeing and deliberating. We thought, well, let's bring more people into this mix and uh, let people kind of listen in on it and, and make draw conclusions for themselves. So uh, you've been a part of that, and we appreciate it. Robust, vigorous right, debate. That's what that's what yeah, no, I say. Robust, that, vigorous that, that, debate. That, so, 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 so thank you that, for participating. Uh, I don't want to put it. I'm going to put it on a ring and send it to you, Kelly, or a necklace or something. <laughs> Robust, <laughs> debate. And uh, we thank you all for being here today. And uh, Susan, thank you. Kel uh, uh, Caleb, thank you for producing. Thank you, Dr. Kennedy. So Mr. Kennedy, of course. I, Caleb told me he was going to say Dr. Thanks <laughs> for the people <laughs> who are watching and commenting and great comments today, and we appreciate the viewers. We really do. Yeah, don't don't assume you know what my position is, uh, as any more so than I would assume what I know what your position is, uh, and uh, and I just I really want to just constantly probe and constantly talk and constantly listen to, to people that have an interesting and different point of view. That's how I learn the most. We have Dr. Vinay Prasad in here now. He is somebody that I agree with just about everything he says. It's contrary to my general philosophy. But he has been in, there he is, he's an oncologist, he reads medical literature better than anybody I know, and he has been on fire lately on social media, very, very concerned particularly about masking and about boosting and about Paxlovid and boosted patients, particularly under the age of 65, what are we doing, even over the age of 65? And so he is just asking the important questions. And we will get to him tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Kelly will be back again. Thank you, Kelly, for coming in for a special session. And we'll see you all tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific time. And I preside back before I go uh, next week. Do we have a uh, guest up yet? Do we know what's happening next week? Anybody? I, I'm not exactly uh, sure. I think I know I'm we're traveling do... next week. Yeah. yeah. Pierre, Pierre Corey on Monday. Pierre okay. Corey on Monday. So Pierre Corey on Monday. And then Tuesday, I think we're taking calls and then you're leaving town on. Yeah. Wednesday. So we need to, we will need to, after all this, we'll need to decompress. So I will take calls on Tuesday. Your questions about any of the things we've learned or heard or thought or been exposed to give you a chance to come and talk about it uh, on a show on Tuesday at three o'clock Pacific time. So again, see you tomorrow at three o'clock Pacific. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. 
I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.